Our scripture today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We'll read together verses 1 through 15. Uh, You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles. We, We also have it up on the screen. John, chapter 4, 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would, have, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You might remember whenever I I, um, think about this passage, I think about uh, two of my favorite places in the world. They're both in the Texas Hill Country, west of San Antonio. Uh, pieces of property that my family has had um, actually since my father was in high school. And so I grew up spending a lot of time at both of these places. One place we call the River House uh, because it's on the Sabinal River and we're super creative with our naming. Uh, it's the River House. And the other place, the other place that's about a mile and a half away, we call the Log Cabin. Any guesses as to why? Uh, We call it the log cabin because on it there is a log cabin. And at the river house, there's a well that supplies the water. And you might think because it's right by the river that it would be great water, but it's not. It's like this old well, and it's the, the water is like super high in mineral content. And when you turn on the faucets, it just fills the the room with the stench of like rotten eggs. If you uh you, you have to dry the dishes very, very carefully when you're done washing or the water will actually stain the dishes. If you brush your teeth with the water at the river house, I'm pretty sure you end up with more cavities than you would have otherwise had. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't brush my teeth with that water. Anyway, that's the water at the river house, the well water. Over at the log cabin, just a mile and a half away, um, you turn on the faucet and the water is like, clear and fresh and delicious and it's like the best water that I've ever had in fact in the near nearest town there used to be a water 
bottle company, a, a water bottling company, because um, in that area, there's this natural spring, kind of an aquifer, and the water at the log cabin taps down into that moving, flowing stream, and from it flows this, the best water that, that you'd ever want to drink. Um, it's fresh and it's refreshing because it's on the move, because it's not stale and stagnant like well water might be. In other words, it's living water. It's living water. Like one of the things that this passage is getting at is something that we all kind of intuitively know, um, that we would all rather have living water than stagnant, stale water, right? Like we would all rather drink from the water at the log cabin than we would drink from the water at the river house. And so this passage shows us that like we're thirsty and we're thirsty for the good stuff. Like we're thirsty for spring water, not well water. Living water is what we're after. And you, know, you might say that living water is just what we're always after, right? Like that we're always looking for something or someone that will really quench our thirsts. And so we're always taking the buckets of our lives and we're putting them down into this well or that well or that well and we're hoping that what we draw up will be really satisfying. Don't we do this? I mean, uh, sometimes we do it with relationships. We think, ah, oh, like, here's one who's finally going to satisfy my thirst. Here's one who will provide the living water that I'm after. I think... I think more and more we do this with our political parties. We say, like, this, this will be the answer. This will be the one in whom we can put our hopes, who will make all things right. Maybe we do it with wealth and possessions. That we think, like, if I just had a little bit more money, if I had a little bit more stuff, like, then I would be satisfied. Then my thirst would be quenched. Like, I don't know. Like, it could be a job. It could be a hobby. It could be our kids. We invest all of our hopes for meaning and, and joy and satisfaction and, and who our kids will become. It's like we're always digging these wells and we're, we're taking our buckets and we're dropping them down into these wells in hopes that when we bring them back up, we'll have living water. Real joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, purpose, love. But what's your experience of that? I mean, I think we experience exactly what Jesus says we'll experience. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Isn't that your experience? Like just always thirsting again. The wells we dig don't provide the living water. Our buckets come up empty and they, or, or they come up full maybe, but very temporarily full, like full, but they've got leaks in them. Or, uh, like, sometimes the wells are completely dry, and sometimes the wells are fine, but it's just normal old water. Or sometimes, let's be honest, like, the water that we bring up really stinks. Like, the well isn't a good well at all. It's a well we never should have dug. You remember that great essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Weight of Glory? I, I refer to it often, but he has, he has an argument in there that's so interesting. I mean, he says that, Usually, um, a desire that we find in ourselves is a good indication that there is something 
that exists in the world that can satisfy that desire. And so, for example, he says, while being hungry is no guarantee that you're going to be fed, he says, being hungry, having that sensation of hunger, is a pretty good indication that there's something out there that exists that can satisfy your hunger. Like it would be really strange, Lewis says, to live in a world in which you experience physical hunger, but there's no such thing as food. That'd be weird. He says, usually, if you have a desire, it's a good indication that something is out there that can satisfy that desire. Everyone wants living water. All of us want to find something or someone in whom we can really let our hearts rest. Something or someone who will satisfy the deep thirst of our souls, not in an ephemeral way, but in a way that is lasting. This desire for living water, this, this desire we all have, is maybe a really good indication that there's a spring, uh, that there is a source of living water, but where is it? How do we find it? How do we get this living water? Well, that's what our passage is all about, right? We learn in verse 4 that Jesus is passing through Samaria where he comes to Jacob's well. John tells us that it was about the sixth hour. What does that mean? Do you remember how they, where they start the day? You start counting at 6 a.m. So what's the sixth hour? Noon. Uh, the sun at that point is just beating down. And so it's hot and Jesus is tired and he's thirsty. So he sits down beside the well, and the Samaritan woman comes along. Now, notice that she comes alone, and notice that she comes in the middle of the day. When's the best time to, to visit a well if you need to draw water? Yeah, like early morning, maybe late evening, but uh, typically back then they did it early morning because it's not hot yet. You can do it when it's still cool. And generally, it is a lot better to do it in a group than alone. It's safer, and it makes carrying the water back easier. And, and so the typical practice would have been for a group of women to come together in the morning to draw well for the rest of the day while it's still cool. But the Samaritan woman comes alone, and she comes at noon when it's unlikely that anyone else will be there. It's like she's wanting no one else to be there, hoping that no one else will be there. And so you see, she is socially isolated. Maybe it's chosen, maybe she wants to be alone, um, but maybe the isolation has been like forced upon her. Maybe she's been excluded and ostracized and, and pushed out of her community. Maybe she is an outcast, an outsider. We learn later in chapter 4 in a passage that we didn't read that she's had five husbands, that she's currently living with someone who is not her husband. And so we can figure that this is a woman who has either experienced a whole lot of rejection or a whole lot of grief or both. Whatever the details of her history, and John really doesn't tell us much at all, we can be sure that her life has been just shot through with disappointment and pain and sadness. And so she comes to the well alone because... She is alone, like terribly alone, like utterly alone. And so you see, she's thirsty, but it's not just physical thirst. Like she's thirsty at this deep soul level. Like she wants something so much more for her life than what her life has been. 
she comes to the well to quench her physical thirst, but what about her spiritual thirst? Like, what about the real thirst? In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, he comes to the ancient people of God with this word from the Lord. My people, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Which is like this brilliant and concise diagnosis, not just for what was wrong with ancient Israel, but for what's wrong with you and me and our world that we turn from the fountain of living waters and dig our own wells and then we drop our buckets down into them over and over again hoping that they'll produce life and we convince ourselves that maybe this next time it will be different and it like who is it that says that's the definition of insanity right doing the same thing over and over again, hoping that this time it'll be different. So here's the Samaritan woman. She comes alone to get water in the heat of the day. And there's Jesus just sitting beside the well. How can we find the living water? It's like family. Maybe the living water finds us. Jesus has journeyed to this far country, maybe just to find the Samaritan woman at the well. And don't you see that he seeks after you too like that? That he goes out of his way to arrange an encounter with you. Not when you're at your best. Not when everything in your life is going really well but when you feel absolutely hopeless and helpless, like when you are at your lowest, Jesus makes sure to be sitting by the well. He puts himself in your path. He makes himself available to you. When you're forsaken, when you feel betrayed and abandoned, when you feel like your life has just been one long chain of disappointments, Jesus seeks you out and he journeys into the far country and he sits beside the well and he makes himself available to you. I've learned from Kenneth Bailey that upon seeing her approach, Jesus would have been expected to withdraw some distance from the well so that she could approach safely and in a culturally appropriate way. And I, I think that sometimes that's what we expect Jesus to do also. We expect him to withdraw as we approach, to move away, to retreat from us, especially when we're not doing well, and especially maybe when our lives are a mess. But Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, he doesn't pull back when we expect him to withdraw. He doesn't pull back when he sees us approach. He just sits there and he waits and so this woman decides to approach. And, and that's when Jesus does something very surprising. He asks her for water. It comes across as a demand, a demand in our English translation, give me a drink. But it's not bossy in the Greek. Like It's actually like the appropriate way, the courteous way to ask 
for water. And you can tell that he is asking because she identifies it as a question in verse 9. Right? She says, how is it that you would you ask for a drink for me? So he's asking nicely for a drink of water. Um, so, so here's Jesus, the Jewish man, asking the Samaritan woman for water. And, and it's just surprising for so many reasons. For one thing, it's surprising that as a man, Jesus would address her in the first place. To talk to a woman like this, especially alone when there are no witnesses around, it violates like this major social norm. Uh, and Jesus just doesn't seem to care about that at all. Like, he doesn't care about what's socially appropriate. He, he doesn't let the, the common custom keep him from engaging this woman in conversation. What's more, uh, he is overlooking, like, about 500 years of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. In verse 10, John, the narrator, reminds us that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Like, they, the Jewish people viewed Samaritans as, um, like, these racially impure religious heretics, but not this Jew. See, Jesus sees her. He doesn't see stereotypes. He doesn't see hostility between groups. He sees a person. And he says, I'm willing to drink from the same well as you. And then also see his humility. Um, Jesus, he's put himself intentionally at a well in the heat of the day without a bucket. I mean, you see that he's made himself vulnerable and he's made himself weak and needy, maybe because he knows that she's vulnerable and weak and needy. And so he's like identifying with her in her neediness. And he's saying, you have something that I need. Will you help me? And all, all of that is so culturally and socially surprising that Jesus is crossing gender and ethnic and religious barriers. And, and, and because of that, the woman is perplexed. And she's intrigued by this person. Who is this? She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask, me for a, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Like she sees how unusual what Jesus is doing is. Here's a Jewish person who is willing to drink from the same bucket as a Samaritan. Here's a man who is willing to put himself at the mercy of a woman. Who is this? Who is this? Well, Jesus tells her. He doesn't do it in the most straightforward way, but it's clear enough. This is, this is how Jesus identifies himself. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's like Jesus is saying, you have something that I need because I am actually really thirsty. <laughs> I'm hoping that you'll dip that bucket down in the well and give me some water. saying, but I have something you need good stuff, the stuff that can satisfy that deep, deep longing. It's like Jesus is saying, I can give you what you've been looking for in all those broken cisterns. He's saying, I'm the spring, I'm the source of living water, I'm the ultimate thirst quencher. I'm the one, the only one who can really satisfy you. Now, family, do you see how extraordinary that claim is? Like, this is one of the many reasons that it, it just, it w will not do to say, yeah, I respect Jesus as, like, a really great religious teacher. A lot of people want to respect Jesus as a great religious teacher. And Jesus doesn't leave us that option. 
all great religious teachers, what do they do? They point away from themselves. They say, if you want to get in touch with the divine, if you want to satisfy like the deep thirst of your soul, well then, like, make a pilgrimage to that mountain or go to that temple or, or read that book or say that prayer or surrender to that reality. And Jesus says, if you want to get in touch with the divine, then get in touch with me, he says. Like, if you want to satisfy the deep thirst of your soul, just come to me and ask. Jesus certainly knew Jeremiah's prophecy where God is identified as the fountain of living water. And now he says, do you see what he says? He says, that's me. And so in the Old Testament, we have the Lord saying, you've forsaken the fountain of living water, me. And now we have Jesus saying, I'm the fountain of living water. Just ask and you'll have it. Like that is either one of the most arrogant, egotistical, delusional things a human being has ever said, or it's just like the best news ever for people like you and me who are thirsty, who are desperate for real life, who are sick and tired of the broken cistern. Like for this woman who has been used up and cast out, it means finally meeting one who sees her and knows her and values her and offers, offers her the life that she has been looking for for all of these years. And to offer her that, Jesus does have to draw attention to places of deep pain. I mean, in, in the passage that follows the one we read, he begins to name some of her, her places of um, pain and shame and abandonment and sorrow. And this is something, family, that Jesus sometimes does in order to help us recognize how truly dehydrated we are. He shows us the places of greatest sorrow and struggle, and he says, right there, like right there in that place is where my grace will meet you. It's like, like right there in... Um, the deepest, driest, darkest valley, that's where my light will begin to shine. If you only come to me. It's like Jesus is saying, you're longing for love and for belonging and to be seen and to be valued and to be secure, but, but within that and beneath all of that is like this deep longing, this deep thirst for me. Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the living water. I am the only one who can satisfy the deep thirst of your soul. Uh, you see, family, that this is not the kind of person you can merely respect. You either want to avoid him because he's just saying crazy things like I can quench the deep longing of your soul. Or you want to go to him and fall at his feet. Say, take care of me. Give me what you have. Fill me up with your life. I mean, Jesus is either in between you and what you really want, or he is what you really want. Can you trust him? 
Will you trust him? We've already seen that Jesus seeks us out, that he is relationally open to us, that he makes himself available to us when we're at our absolute worst. Remember, family, how far it goes. Remember that that Jesus is not a stone skipping across the surface, but that he actually... He actually sinks down to the very depths of our human experience in a way even that surpasses us. Um, At the end of his life, when Jesus is on the cross, John tells us something that I've just been chewing on this week. He says that Jesus says from the cross, when Jesus saw that it was finished, but before he says it's finished, he says, do you remember I thirst. He says, I thirst. I just, it's so interesting. Because John, as we'll see, well, he makes a big deal about Jesus being the one who satisfies our thirst. Like later in John chapter 7, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And, and then springs of living water will well up within that person. I mean, here he says, come to me and drink and living water will well up in you to eternal life. And at the cross, at the end, Jesus says, I thirst. And um, why? (laughs) Why does John tell us that? Well, because it happened and it's true, right? Okay, fine. But later in John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus did so many things and he said so many things that the whole world wouldn't be a library big enough to contain all of the details of it, all of the fullness and richness of it, which means that whenever we read the Gospel of John or really any other Gospel, we have to be asking or probing beneath that question. I mean, the answer, yeah, because it happened and it's true, to like, okay, but why this? Why include this? And why include this here? I don't know, but I think that maybe what John is cluing us into is that um, on the cross, Jesus was thirsty. <laughs> but not in the obvious way. Like, of course, anyone dying the horrific death of crucifixion thirsts. It's like a no-brainer. It's like there's never been a person crucified who wasn't thirsty. But I think John is wanting to show us that he's like really thirsty. It's like he wants to show us that on the cross, Jesus goes to the depths of our human experience and makes like the, the soul thirst his own thirst. Um, that that's how fully God enters into our world, that the source of living water gets thirsty. That's, that's weird, isn't it? That the one in whom there is life would die. That the one who is life would die. That, um, that the spring becomes this dry cistern. That this is how far God goes to care for us. That this is how deeply God identifies us. To the point 
of taking onto himself and into himself the absolute fullness of our human condition, including like our deep and desperate thirst for him. All the loneliness, all the hopelessness, all the disappointment, all the returning day after day to the broken cisterns, all the shame and all the guilt and all the longing for something better and something more. Jesus bears it in his body on the cross. It's like God, um, he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from any of that family. He just takes it into his life and he deals with it. And so you can trust a God who loves you like this. You can trust um, that when you go to this God, you will not be cast off. Not ever. You won't be forsaken. He won't turn away from you. You can, you can take the deep need of your life. And, and you know what that is for you far better than I do. He knows what it is for you far better than you do. You can take that to Jesus and you won't be turned away. A God who loves you like this is a God you can trust. And so family, will you do it? Will you trust him? It's like, it's like here's your well. And here's Jesus sitting beside your well. And, and maybe that's Every day, day after day, here's Jesus sitting beside your well. Here's your well, whatever it is, whatever you've been going to, hoping this is what's going to give me life. Guess who's right there beside it? Jesus. It's like, here's the river house with the stinky egg water. And here's the log cabin. You don't have to drink that. 